In 2017, I located a box of my late grandfather's memoirs. My sister Justine took it upon herself to organize his quirky tales. We felt a podcast would do his stories justice. While we didn't know him very well, through his words, we have connected with our grandfather in a way like never before. His extraordinarily ordinary memories live on. I'm Janica, and together with my sister Justine, we are the proud granddaughters of Ernest J. Hamer Jr. And you're listening to The Unimportance of Being Ernie podcast. You'll hear a conversational style approach with storytelling and a few Australian history lessons sprinkled in along the way. We hope you enjoy. Justine and I have been just speaking about Reconciliation Day. It's yes. not a day, was it? It's not a day. Why no, don't you it's... tell me more? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a whole week. So I do apologize for the last recording where I didn't right. get that incorrect. What um, what confused me was because my workplace was celebrating for the day on Tuesday uh, by uh, recognizing its Indigenous employees. Yes. Uh, however, right now it's actually NIDOC week, uh, which is another week dedicated to the Indigenous people, but it's not just about um, uh, when the colonialists came in, it's about all aspects to do with Indigenous life and, and the current culture as well, celebrating it and whatnot. Yeah. So, so the last episode, Grandad, or should I say Ernie, bumps into the fellow that was hit by a boomerang and nearly lost five his leg. years prior <laughs> nearly lost his leg got some type of poison into his leg so it's uncanny that he bumps into this fellow again and the guy is riding in first class from what I remember on the train and, and granddad just thought how how is that possible <laughs> anyway we are now on the final chapter, chapter 11, called Some um, Trucking. trucking. Mm. <laughs> so we're going to, we've decided to split this chapter up into two sections. Justine, would you like to read the first? Ah, yes, yeah, sure. Lovely. Absolutely. Okay, and we begin. Some Trucking. Although the war had been over for some months, Western Australia was still very much on a war footing, as was the rest of the country. With the current argument about whether the Australian Army can recruit one extra battalion to make a total of five, it is weird to consider those times when, with a much lower population, there were over a million Australians in uniform. In addition, there were hundreds of thousands of Allied service personnel in the country. The civilian population was rationed as much as it was during the war, although some locally produced items, such as meat, were becoming easier to obtain. Luxury items, such as cigarettes, continued to be rationed for many years. Petrol rationing had created a big black market where it could always be obtained if you knew the right people, 
Ooh, that kind of sounds like today's gone. What, <laughs> what's about to happen today? Fremantle, <laughs> mm. during the war, had become an important American naval base, particularly for submarines. The sheltered waters of the Swan River near Netherlands had become a very important uh, Catalina flying boat base with the ancillary uh, personnel. These bases required being mostly American, Perth and Fremantle had become most Yankee field. Yankified. Yankified. <laughs> I've never heard I'm that. I'm not term. sure. Is that a rude term or not? I don't know. Um, no. So, what happened with the word Yankee? So, the song Yankee Doodle was actually meant to be a, uh, a slur towards the Americans and the American people by the British when they were taking, when they were, you know, fighting at that time. And so, they'd sing this song, Yankee Doodle, as a slur. But right. then the Americans took it on and they're like yes we're yanks and and they took on the slur and it became them and it backfired because they were not um put off by it so super sidestep here a lot of the uh, so I used to live in Lexington Massachusetts where it's right next to Concord Massachusetts where the British troops were walking up this road Boston Post Road at the time and I believe that they would sing this song while they were on their horses going up to Concord and Mm. it's just a really fascinating piece of history here in Massachusetts anyway sidestep has now gone it it technically yeah so just (laughs) to clarify it technically is not a slur (laughs) yes okay good yeah Um, there was still plenty of evidence for this. Before the war, the firm of Marion Bell had perhaps a dozen staid limousines, mostly black, with, which provided taxi services for anyone who could afford them. Now there were fleets of cabs cruising around bearing the name Swan Taxis. Ooh, wow. Sorry, Swan Taxis are very well known over here in WA. So I, I didn't know that piece of history. That's excellent. Interesting. As the Americans were dwindling in numbers, even Australians were welcome as passengers and the rates had been lowered. The Metro bus service between Fremantle and Perth had been supplemented by a fleet of parlour cars, small, very fast vehicles, which could carry up to 12 in comfort. They were, I imagine, constructed locally by building a bus body on the chassis of the light truck. I had not observed them in any other Australian cities. These parlour cars did an express run between Perth and Fremantle. Many of them had cumbersome gas producers fitted, but from the sound of the engines purring, very few of them still operated on producer gas. Many of them were RIOs, stands for R.E. Olds, the American manufacturer. My training to become a truck driver took place in some local paddock. My mechanical knowledge has always been abysmal, yet by some intensive instruction, I learned to reverse and double declutch to our instructor's satisfaction. As I, sorry, as we needed to drive around the metropolitan area, there was one large gap in my education. 
I had very little local knowledge. This resulted in my being lost on several occasions in the first few weeks after receiving my license. I guess they didn't have Google Maps back then on their <laughs> <No>. cell phones. <laughs> or probably even oh. roadmaps in general. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Yep. Apart from being lost in the suburbs, there are a couple of fond memories of my early days as a driver. One was the happy task of picking up a beer for the canteen from the brewery in Mounts Bay Road. Once the beer was loaded in my instruct my instructions were to report to the brewery office. It was really just a nice way to invite me to the brewery canteen. Evidently, it was standard practice for all visitors, particularly truck drivers, to be presented with a couple of beers when at the brewery. But what beers? I was offered a huge clear glass container, which could have doubled as a bucket full of my favorite beer. One of these should have been enough for me, but being a genuine lager lover, I accepted the second bucket. My appreciation of those couple of beers still remains. Do you know what? I think he might be talking about the Swan. You think the Swan Brewery on Mounts Bay Road? Gosh, you know possibly. They, yeah. It's still there. The actual building's still there. It's a heritage listed building and it went into almost ruin because the brewery stopped producing because it wasn't, you know, earning any money. Um, mm. But then some enterprising uh, person with lots of money uh, managed to take it on. Uh, going through the Heritage uh, Council here is a nightmare, but they managed to zhuzh it up and make it kind of a hotel and, and restaurant, a very Lovely. expensive one. And it's the only yeah. thing literally right on, on the river's edge. On the water, yes, yeah. it's beautiful. All right, so my appreciation for those couple of beers still remains. We were driving stake-sided Ford, the 30 hundred weight trucks on one of our first major jobs. Surplus tinned rations from somewhere up the Western Australian coast were unloaded from a, a ship in Fremantle Harbour and being transported to a store at Claremont. The name of the ship was the King Bay, a name which was to be significant in my future. Oh, the ship itself of only a couple of hundred tons weight had been built along with a sister ship, the Nickel Bay, on the bank of the Swan River at East Fremantle. Both ships exercised, oh, sorry, both ships had been com commandeered by the army at the beginning of the war. The exercise of bringing surplus rations back to be stored was rather futile. Dumps of tinned rations were so huge in New Guinea, it was reported that the entire floors of warehouses were made of them. Knowing the reluctance of the Australian troops to actually eat some of the tinned food and having seen some of the dumps of it in Queensland, I can believe those reports. <laughs> the stuff we were shifting would be condemned anyway. Most of the tins were rusting. 
My lack of ability with matters mechanical was clearly demonstrated when assigned as a driver for a flash of a flash new staff car. I had to ferry some officers from Birch Street at artillery artillery barracks to somewhere in Perth. The car had a newfangled steering wheel, gear shift, and with the officers on board, I contrived to shift gears from second forward to reverse without wrecking the gearbox. It did wreck my potential as a star car driver. <laughs> uh, the final few months of the my army life with the 124 Australian General Transport, as it was known, were an education into the aspect of army life, which had been previously virtually unknown to me. My own behaviour had not been what you call exemplary. There had been some dishonesty on my part and some <laughs> black marketing. Oh, I'm glad... <laughs> glad he's honest. <laughs> the amount of corruption revealed on a visit to one army camp has the ability to appall and astound me even now, nearly 50 years later. Early in this article, at the time I joined the army, mention was made that my father had also joined up to serve in the 5th Garrison Battalion. These ah. garrisons... Yeah, these garrison battalions were utilised on guard duty and specifically they guarded prisoners of war. One garrison unit gained fame by quelling the outbreak of Japan, Japanese POWs at Kaura. POWs. POWs, thank you, in New South Wales. There was a prisoner of war camp in Western Australia at Maranyup. Oh, I didn't know that. A timber mill near Pinjarra, a small country mm. town. These prisoners were mostly Italians and some Germans. Many of the Italians had been given the opportunity to engage in farm work on settled farms. The remainder of them and the Germans were engaged in the timber industry. The 5th Garrison Battalion provided the guard. The war being over, arrangements had been made to repatriate all of these prisoners. Just as an explanation, the garrison battalions had been formed early in the war as a sort of a home guard. The units were compromised mainly of ex-servicemen from the First World War, many of them, such as my father, British ex-servicemen. The Italian prisoners Granddad of war, was Granddad's father was British? Ah. Uh, huh. I guess oh, maybe I it was Welsh. sorry, it's Welsh, but served Welsh. for the British Army. The British okay, Army, got yeah, it. yeah. Got it. And his name is Ernest as well. Ah. Mm. The Italian prisoners of war, those who had been working on farms in various areas, had to be brought into central staging points so they could be transported in groups to a main receiving camp at Northam. From there, they would repatriate overseas. The 124 AG transport provided the drivers for this operation. The trucks used were refurbished four-wheel drive Chevrolet and Ford vehicle, which had been used, sorry, which had been in use with the forestry operation at Marignac. 
It would be a colossal understatement to say the trucks had been abused by whoever was driving them. The people who did the refurbishing and made a wonderful job of it were the surviving crew of the Cormoran, the ship which reportedly sunk the HMAS Sydney. To have rehabilitated those automotive wrecks was quite a credit to maritime versatility. When each truck became available, two drivers were driven to Marignyup to take delivery and begin collecting the Italians from the farms. It was necessary to stay overnight at Marignyup and for the first time during my army career, I was in the same camp as my father. I reckon we should continue on. Yeah. Okay. So this is yeah. no longer a two-part series. This is just one whole episode. <laughs> one whole episode. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> there are many times when, regrettably, my memory does not recall many of the details of a place. This is one of those occasions. I remember having the evening meal in the company of my father. It was the main meal of the day and consisted of tinned stew, reconstituted dried potatoes and similar dried cabbage. There was jam, the always half rancid tin butter and most incredible of all, no bread, only army biscuits. The appearance of the mess room should have indicated to me conditions were not normal in that camp. In a place where timber was the main product, the mess was just a dugout a leftover from the First World War. Breakfast was a similar meal, tinned bacon, tinned sausages, and the, the, that most vile of army concoctions, reconstituted dried eggs. Most puzzling to me was the lack of bread. One of the highlights of my army career was being supercargo to a huge batch of freshly baked bread, which was almost delivered to frontline troops in New Guinea. Why then, with the war over, in a camp far removed from any possible enemy activity, should there be no fresh food? It took a few years to realize just what was happening at Marinup, and it was all bad except for one genuine roast meal at Sunday lunchtime, every particle of fresh food was sold to the local civilian population. Not, to my knowledge, any of the rations issued to the prisoners was flogged. They were covered by the Geneva Convention. The ones who suffered were the guards themselves, particularly the two honest ones such as my old man. He told me all of the lurks and rorts later, and it made me feel a little sick. The fresh meat was delivered to the garrison at Marignup was, quite appropriately, loaded into the ambulance and delivered to, among other customers, the local butcher's shop. Dairy goods to similar destinations, groceries and vegetables, likewise. What my father did not know or even realise was that was what must have been the wholesale theft of petrol and automotive spare parts. Robbing the government was, has always been accepted as the prerogative of all good Australians. 
depriving your mates is not in this category. Now, when someone starts praising these stalwart heroes of any of the armed services, I must confess to becoming rather cynical. They were only ordinary people, very ordinary people. The base to where we had to, uh, sorry, the base to where we had to wear the ex-farmers, I think he's put in the wrong <laughs> That's word. That's a complicated <laughs> sentence, yeah. Um, <laughs> the ex-farmers prisoners had to be taken to Popenyaning. A small group of army people, about six of them, were responsible for all the prisoners in the area. They were billeted in a house on the outskirts of the town and the conditions they worked under were in striking contrast to the contrived purgatory of Marinia. When we arrived at the house, every one of that little group was suffering from dreadful hangovers. Mm -hmm. The cook, suffering a little less than the others, whipped up a magnificent meal of steak and eggs plus mushrooms. These last grew in profusion in a nearby paddock. Over a couple of years, the army group had become an integral part of the small town. They were invited to all the parties, had become the mainstay of the local hotel and provided company for all local lonely females. Ooh, la, la. There was a wonderful existence, but they did. Uh, oh, theirs was a wonderful existence. But they did not appear, sorry for, sorry, sorry, it was all coming to an end. Possibly, oh wow, sorry, I'm losing it. Do <laughs> Possibly, you want me to read? Yeah, just let me finish this one sentence. Okay. Possibly, it had been too good. Yes, please take over. There were a number of very emotional scenes when we picked up the prisoners from the farmhouses. This was understandable because the gentle Italians had endeared themselves to the farming people, particularly the women folk, who treated them as though they were their own sons. There were plenty of tears at the partings. During their stay at Papinyining, the prisoners also had as pleasant a time as their, usually half sober, hosts could arrange. One time, this included being presented with a small keg of Cooper's beer, a South Australian brew which no one locally could drink. The worst part drink. of the exercise... Oh, would drink, sorry. Would drink. <laughs> Not could drink. They could. They wouldn't drink it. The worst part of the exercise for the prisoners was the long drive from Papanyining to Northern. It was miserable weather and the truck had to be covered. They became sick and were not very considerate about toilet stops. On a dreadful rainy night, our navigation was so rough, we managed the almost impossible driving error by arriving at Wickapin, many miles from our objective, Northern. My 21st birthday was spent on one of those trips. I distinctly remember catching a packet of cigarettes from one of our passengers. They were locally made things issued free to the prisoners. The company which made them should have been sued for false pre pretenses. They were an awful smoke. 
not long after this episode of Miami, Miami Life came to a juddering halt, after having words with a short, fat sergeant major, my discharge was accelerated and suddenly I became a civilian. My age was 21 years and a couple of months. Oh, and that's, and that's the end of his army career. <laughs> In some <Yeah>. ways. <laughs> One more page to go, and then it is the end. Yeah. <laughs> end of oh, sorry. One, yeah. Right. Yeah. In some ways, the five and a half years I spent in my arm um, in the army were completely wasted. It was a period when my education should have been a priority. Well, there was some education, but none of it really could apply to civilian life except for familiarization with high explosive. Of course. <laughs> On a more positive note, the army had fed and paid me far better than I deserved. My body had developed, and with the good food and almost constant exercise, I could no longer be considered puny. In a way, the army had shielded me from the reality of life, because no matter what happened, I would still be fed and paid. I did excel in one non-military activity. This was the ancient art of weaving. During my many periods of hospitalization, I became rather adept to weaving scarves on a hand loom. Huh. This activity was encouraged by the authorities as a form of occupational therapy. The last scarf I made was extremely well woven. So much so, it could have been entered into a competition for such items and won a prize. <laughs> it was, as I remember, woven in the pattern of the Napier Clan Tartan, or Napier Clan Tartan. It was intended as a gift for one of the family, but unfortunately, I could not resist showing it off to one of the army nurses not a particular favorite of mine, and in the hospital I was lo loafing in at the time. Without any beg your pardons, she whipped the precious scarf out of my hands, said thanks, and left me sitting down open mouthed. Possibly that was too that too was educational. Would you like to continue reading? Oh, I can finish off, yeah. My discharge from the army was not accompanied by any fanfares. As I recollect, it was a rather rushed affair with as many people being discharged as the army bureaucracy could process. The same as all the others, being discharged was, oh, sorry, being discharged, my one ambition was to be out of the service, become a civilian and begin spending my deferred pay. The money accumulated from contributions made from my fortnightly wages and not accessible before discharge. Ah. Which is lucky because it would have been all wasted in it away. <laughs> <laughs> it had been rather interesting to learn via the media that after the war there were, there were victory parades complete with ticker tape by troops returning from the war zones. It was not my good fortune to be invited to join one of these parades. At the time, I never even knew they were being held. Possibly I was in the wrong army or maybe the wrong war. 
<laughs> that was the <laughs> oh my goodness. That was the end of my army life. With a pocket full of money and a most unusual suit of civilian clothes, I was ready, so I thought, to face the future. But not too seriously until the money had been spent. And that signed is, off by yes. Ernest J. Hamer. 20th of July, 1995, he wrote that one. Wow. So, Grandad, what's really interesting about this is Grandad does, in fact, talk about his father. And yes. we had, the entire time, we had been questioning so much about his parents and his brothers and sisters. So to, to have some light, Oh, well, to, for his father and their relationship to be brought to light was really interesting. Yeah. Well, it was more just that they sat together at mealtimes. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess so. It wasn't yeah. too intensively spoken about. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. So that that's uh, very interesting, I must say. I, I quite enjoy his perspective on that war, his cynicism mm. towards it. Uh I, I feel it was a very different view um, of most wartime stories I believe I come across. Not that I yeah. go seeking out any. Yeah. How did you find the whole uh, air portion of his life in the army? He was, oh, how can, cyn- yes, yeah, cynical with a hint of comedy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He just had this very fascinating way of explaining or yes. describing situations. He's quite clever with his use of words. So I'm really glad that when we're reading along, we can actually feel like we relate somehow. You know, it's yes. just like, oh, I managed, I don't know how, but I now am <laughs> training to be a paratrooper. Uh, <laughs> so, well, then <laughs> I'm clumsy. And, you know, it, it just it just makes these situations so relatable, I feel like, to anyone. And I'm a woman in her 30s. I'm not a yes. teenage boy in the 1920s. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, yeah, the 19th. 19- what, 1940s 1930s yeah. to 1940s so to be able to speak to a very diverse audience and multi-generational as well yeah. we are quite lucky that he has passed this story onwards to us about his memories being in the army I agree and just Lovely. chucking in history in there for us as well mm. uh, especially like with the swan taxis I, I had no <laughs> idea they'd been around for so long um, yes yeah and he, just his general perspective is very interesting so I am looking forward to the next kind of large segment of his life he does have little short stories here and there which are great yes. yeah um, but there's at least two ones one of his life before the army and one of his life after the army that are, are quite interesting a read as well yes the exploration of the northwest and how he stumbles yes. upon being part of the exploration team and I, I, love it. I was in fits of laughter oh. and just tears yeah. tears <laughs> and, and i like how goodness 
you know, things happen to you in life. And he's just like, oh, okay, this is happening. I'll, I'll go along with it. it it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> just so we'll of it. Yeah, what we're going to yeah. read next for you, whether it's his early days or if it's his later days, but it's very much WA. If you if you listen to the mining segments, um, mm. it still goes on here in WA. It's very intriguing. Right. Yes, a very um, interesting. If you if you do live in the northwest of Australia and you have some fascination with that history, uh, yes. it will be coming in season two. So we'll we'll have to pick and choose what we read. But we will be back at some point. Yes. Bye. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening. Hit the subscribe button if you'd like access to the newest episodes as they release. We love that you want to hear what Ernie had to say. And he had a lot to say. Stay tuned for more to come.